Welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I was talking with Mark Flynn. Now, back when we were recording this episode at the start of the year, Mark worked at UConn, the University of Connecticut, and was the coordinator of the Four Arrows Challenge course and experiential leadership programs. He has since left that position and is pursuing other things, so I wish Mark all the best in the future. Um, Hopefully, our paths will continue to connect. So thank you once again for joining us, and let's get into the episode. We're going to do a segment that I didn't include in there. I've got some music for this segment. Hang on one second. (laughs) And while I play this, while I play the music, um, I will fight. I'll pull up these questions. The set, this is going to be a fan favorite, I guarantee. And it's called mystery questions. The most overly dramatic. <laughs> yeah, very epic. I, I really hope the question matches the sound. <laughs> well, That's like an intro to an action movie. No, no, or, or like a really good drama series. There's, there's something I. It makes me. It, that makes me laugh a lot because it's like I found a a track that is so much more dramatic than the questions that I just like the the balance. What okay, so how, so how mystery questions works is I'm going to give you so I've got ten, 10 questions written down. All you need to do is give me a number. And whatever number you give me will be the question that I ask you and then I will also answer that question myself. So okay. I like that. 1 to 10. What's the number? Uh, 7. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Huh? Okay, well I've never asked this question, so that's great. How well would you get along with your clone? If it's the same exact person, right? Like if you're thinking clone, I don't know if there's a, a debate about whether or not there's a separation once somebody is cloned that they begin getting different experiences and therefore nature versus nurture happens mm. and therefore you become different people. Like I know that I grew up in the same house as my brothers and they turned out very differently than me because maybe the social circles I have. So if I'm thinking that the brain is the same and where we think similarly, which I would hope on a clone, uh, I think we would get along very well. Hmm. I think we compete and, and, and debate each other a little too much sometimes and we need to find ways to separate from one another to get our own space. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, I wonder if you've watched this. Funny that this, this question popped up. Uh, m- me and my wife will currently watch an Orphan Black. Did you ever watch oh, that yeah, show? Yeah. That's I've all... seen the first two seasons. I haven't gotten uh, to that. Yeah, so we're on, the, we're on the fourth season now. But for those who haven't seen it, it's clone-based. And each of the clones are almost completely different based on that nurture kind of stuff like they're they're genetically all identical but the way that they their personalities they're so 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 differently defined so i think that i would get on with a clone if maybe they were different i I, i'm like already a person who's very in my own head arguing with myself so i feel like i can deal with my inner head an outward spoken person who i can't actually control as much remember that would uh, my insecurities would billow out more. 
And also maybe I'd be aware of things that I think I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, it feels pretty cool at something. And then I see myself from another world, like that is uh, how I am. <laughs> oh, the, God. the outside looking in, right? Yeah. Instead of just internally reflecting, you now have an external reflection of you. Yeah. Who could then tell you on your own terms, your own language, and how you understand what you should be thinking about? Yeah, <laughs> I. It's funny because uh, sort of you sort of experience it a little bit when you edit podcasts. Only that you get to hear yourself, yeah. and anyone who's like ever heard themselves speak, you really struggle with that. Yeah. I have heard myself speak so much now that I know all of my little t- ticks and stuff. The things that I have to cut out. Uh, I mm. say the word like way too much. I found so it's like. Oh, I just said it. <laughs> Those crutch words. So yeah, pillars, right? it's so one. It's so incredible. There's, I've noticed them. I can identify them a lot of people I work with now that I've had recordings. Like you say this a lot, or you do this a lot, or you tap the table when you speak. You're a very animated tap tapper. It's that kind of stuff. So yeah. I, to a certain degree, I may maybe have interacted with my clone self. Okay, so. <laughs> There we go. That was uh, mystery questions. All right. So um, the first question that really I have for you to, for our listeners is what what was your introduction to the field? Like, how did you even get started in this field? You've been here doing it nearly a decade. Like, was it intentional yeah. or circumstantial? No, not, not completely intentional. Uh, I actually uh, wanted to be an architect at first. Like, oh. I did hand drafting for four years in high school. Oh man, I didn't right? know this. Yeah. Right, really cool class. It was a uh, in the in the U wing, way away from everybody else. Uh, and you kind of had your own little home with other people who like to draw. Uh, and so I really loved the hand drafting. Then I got to college my first semester and I learned a lot about the industry of architecture. And I said, well, this is not for me. Too many straight lines. It's kind of like how I describe it. Uh, not enough of what I would like to impact as far as experience. Uh, and within the first semester, I knew that was not my path. So then I went into computer graphics and wanted to be in animation, right? And so still stuck with the arts. Uh, I got my bachelor's in fine arts, had to stay an extra year because the architecture classes didn't transition. <laughs> like they, they're like, yeah, that's architecture. We can't take those credits. Uh, so great. Uh, extra year. But I think that's a fantastic thing to, to adapt to. I think that extra year gave me a, a way to mature in a way I didn't think I would. And I learned that I wanted to work in a college, mm-hmm. right? I got really involved. And then I had a, a mentor that I got along with, uh, Michael Burnett. And uh, he helped steer me towards the option of making a career out of working at a university or, or a college. And, you know, you don't go into college, at least I didn't, as a first-gen uh, person, like my family doesn't know anything about college. Mm-hmm. Uh, first-gen, go in, and then you learn you could also work at one. Like, that makes sense. Look at all the people around doing jobs at the place <laughs> that you're taking classes, not just teaching. Mm-hmm. And so, went off to UConn for my master's degree, and at that juncture... Uh, I had an opportunity to volunteer as a facilitator at the up and coming uh, low ropes course for arrows. Uh, it only had a handful of elements. It was a full volunteer process where the director of student activities at the time, Christine Wilson, uh, who prior worked at URI, uh, University of Rhode Island, uh, to also run challenge courses and other leadership experiences. Uh, thought it'd be a great thing for professionals or up and coming professionals to have experience facilitating and why not facilitating experientially. Mm-hmm. And we have this wonderful resource that they wanted to invest in, which was the low ropes course. So I said, yes, sign me up. I went through a whole four day, 35 hour training, long days, uh, climbed a wall and walked across wires and fell in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I also just fell in love with the fact that it was hands-on that, 
we ask questions at the end of things, not just leave it as we did this thing and then we're done. And I think for me, that's my style of learning is, is also by doing and then reflecting. And so there was just a, a happy marriage between me volunteering for this and gaining some of those skills and, and being told that this is, this is a, a thing that you could work on for forever, right? Like it's not just this one-off thing. So then I transitioned to a summer job between my <laughs> master's and going to my first uh, higher ed job. And I helped manage the land, right? Manage the trails. And I built a space uh, for the new elements to be placed down. We were getting our first well watch. And uh, I also built a portable spider web out of PVC pipe and bungee cord because we, we had some populations that uh, had different abilities and we wanted to accommodate their, their process of learning. And so we made portable versions of things and, and accessible versions of things. And I helped in that process. And that was just expanded my perspective of what facilitation was and what I can do to provide different avenues of learning. Uh, and then I went to Florida for two years uh, and was in my first professional post master's program job. And it wasn't a, a great fit. I learned a lot from it. And I got a call within two years saying, hey, we're actually looking to fulfill like a position to run for arrows. And we changed the way it was going to be and have student focused facilitators, train them, hire them, hire them, train them. Right. You got to do that the other way, not, <laughs> not train them, then hire them. That doesn't work that way. And then run this program, build it and, and run it. And so I've been at UConn ever since. Yeah. So, so, so cool to to like uh, find your way into a field and then you, exp you, you said you, you fell in love with this notion. I think that that's something that a lot of us people listening can relate to is that you've, you found some area that wasn't necessarily what you got in, you did at college. Like I didn't do that English lit. So it's like, there's a lot of people who have found their way into it, but then just found that there is that consistent growth. There is that thing that you as an individual are also growing through the process too, which is really exciting to see. Can you see in the, in the last like 10 years, can you identify moments? Is there any like aha moments that you found like you had a, a real poignant piece of growth for your experience through facilitation? It's a um, pool of different experiences and where I think I, I, t I talk a lot with my staff and I talk a lot with colleagues about the idea of imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> I've been doing this for close to a decade, whether that is just leadership facilitation or workshop facilitation and, and, and ropes course facilitation. And I always think to myself, there's somebody else who knows it better, who does it better that I copy, right? Mm -hmm. My first facilitator in adventure, the adventure world where I was sent to a workshop professionally was Mark Hollard. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he did adventure programming and he is an amazing facilitator, tells wonderful stories. And like, how do I ever get to that peak moment of that's my profession? Right. And so that was like my first initial aha mm -hmm. is that I could copy a little bit and imitate until I find my own voice. Right. And, I, and so I talk with my staff about how imitation is OK to get started. Right. And, and sometimes people kind of struggle with that. And so as a person who is also supervising people who are learning the process, I purposely change how I do facilitation. And I learned this over time. Like I used to like, I do this this way. And this is the only way I do it when I first started. Mm -hmm. And over time I learned, I got to switch it up, not for me, but for my staff. And so, because I learned through my first year that they would literally copy word for word, set up and, and how they even ask questions for reflection, exactly how I did it for them during training or during a workshop. 
And so through my students experiencing their learning, I had to be forced to change and adapt my professional style because I know that imitation was one of the key functions of starting, at least for my staff. Maybe it's my own experience and that's not happening elsewhere, but I do think it is. Mm -hmm. And so I think the juncture, like my first couple of years there, when I noticed it and really had to reflect on how am I training my staff? I had to switch up my style. Like I brought a notebook and I was like reading from it so they could see that that's okay. Or I was not using props on purpose. So they, they knew that that was okay. And then I would change the rules in the middle of something. So they knew that that was okay. Right. So like I had to do a lot of switching. Yeah. And I think those are some of like the key moments and a lot of it's with my student staff and I get very surprised uh, and I can't really pull out any other big ones, big aha moments. Maybe it's uh, when we had like a police officer who was going through one of our um, programs fall into the arms of a community member because we were combining them as a, a group in a trust fall. And then they're hugging. And then later on, I, I'm told a story that uh, they now high five each other, get coffee after their experience, that they stay connected. Mm-hmm. And for me to know that I spent a day with them. And they were at first at odds as far as like a community member and a police officer relationship was not the grandest at that time. And the idea behind the program was to kind of build those and to learn that they're now connected afterwards in a positive way. was like another learning moment. It was like, what I do matters. Yeah. What my students do matter. What my colleagues do matter. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes just asking a question or providing the avenue for somebody to experience something allows for that building of a bridge or building, if people don't like bridges, uh, a relationship, a communication line, uh, some fashion of connection. Let's talk uh, about your your work with your students. You already talked about you needed to be cautious that, of the mimicry. Are there other f- tips and skills you've learned over the years that you think in in your teaching of these students that would be valuable for people to hear if maybe they're teaching their own staff i know that there are people here listening who don't necessarily hire outside providers like myself to come in so what tips do you have for that i think when i first entered it would be don't rock the boat right away and and then that's because if you're new and you're you're now in a position of power that influences long-term uh, way people either recognize, go through, or experience what you're providing, whether that's a program, a workshop, or just working with staff who do the different things you ask them to do. Rocking the boat right away to make changes may not be the best way to learn culture. And I think one of the first things I came in and I assessed the staff that was already hired. Mm-hmm. I didn't hire my first staff. My first year, I inherited. And so I did a lot of listening and a lot of asking why. And I think I've always been a why person. You could ask my mom uh, about when we would go shopping. I would touch things and then ask why, why is this here? Why is that up there? Why is it over there? So that's, I think, carried over to my professional uh, identity is ask a lot of why and, and be curious. I think not only just be curious about the culture, uh, but the people, because I think the number one resource, any facilitated experience is the people running it. You could have props, you could have uh, ropes, course, harnesses, helmets, and lay people up and across. But if your people aren't trained, and if people don't like the job that they're doing, if they're not working well together, they don't understand the reason of the mission of your organization, then they're never going to do a really good experience in which people remember and walk away with something of an aha moment. So, so my tip to start out would be don't rock the boat, ask a lot of questions and be generally curious, right? And, and curious has kept me running for the length of this job. Why do you want this? 
what do you what do you want to get out of it? And that drives our, our customization of the program. I ask my student staff, why are you doing this? Why do you want this job? Like, and then we hire them, mm-hmm. right? But then we continue asking that question, what keeps you here? Like, what are you getting out of this still? What have you learned, right? And so I have uh, a monthly one-on-ones with my, my staff. We do periodic check-ins. We have weekly meetings. So there's a lot of features for us to do to connect people. And you got to remember they're people, not just a product of your organization running something Mm -hmm. because everybody has something going on in their life. They have things going on in the world around them. They have other things that they're dealing with. And I work with students who are learning to be themselves for the first time outside of their home, maybe, or trying to financially how to pay for college or trying to figure out how to make their resume (laughs) bulky enough that they get hired in the industry they want to enter. And I find that the majority of the people I work with are not going into this specific field, but the amount of people who could use the skills mm. of facilitation in all realms of their life is everywhere. Right. And so that, so that curiosity of knowing their people and asking them what it matters to them could also help steer how you train them, could steer the conversations about how they could adapt or how they could reflect on different things that they're getting out of the experience because as Phil, you said earlier that you, you get stuff out of doing this. Right. And then when you hear that one time that you impacted somebody positively, that's like a huge, like uplifting time frame. Like for me, that's like a motivator on a regular basis that I get, Hey, can you write me a letter of recommendation? Hey, I got this job. They asked me to facilitate this experience and I, I had the, the ability to do so. And that's huge. Mm-hmm. But as you train and have your staff go through that, you have to have check-in points to make sure that they're still doing something for themselves, not just for others. And I find too often in this industry and this work is that we're focused very much on doing more for, for others and sometimes not asking ourselves again, what are we getting out of this? Mm-hmm. And so I purposely and intentionally make sure that we have that focus on a regular basis about self, mm-hmm. right? If you're not good, you're not going to be able to do good for others. This is this is interesting to me because you work with students who aren't necessarily going to then transition into this field. So you're not like setting them up for the field. What, no, not what, at all. What skill? What what are the skills? Because this is the thing that I think experiential education. What we need to do better. This is my pers- my perspective of what the industry needs to do better is adv- is advocate for what the work we do in a larger field than outdoor ed summer camp programming. Yeah. What skills can you say that your students are getting out of the program that you think are applicable to the outside world? Only two of the staff have ever supervised have entered some form of this field and the other 50 plus have not. So if that, and they've been all over the place as far as going to medical to environmental to, to business relations and so on and so forth. So wide range, but every mm-hmm. single one of them are going to leave this experience with the ability to work with other people. Right, because we are intentional about pairing people up as facilitators, requiring them to relate with each other and talk about what they're doing for their program plan, and to also reflect with each other at the end of every program and, and help do constructive criticism. Right? What did I do well, or what did you do well, or what did I need to do to work better? Right? And so those are some very crucial social skills that literally are helpful in any work environment. Are you working in a lab? 
Are you working by yourself in that lab 100% of the time forever? I really highly doubt that. Now, are you, and if you are, are you virtually sharing any of that information, data, and communicating with others outside of your lab, right? So right now, one of the crucial abilities of transferable skills is how to communicate with others and how to do it in a way in which you're not going to negatively impact their perspective of you and the work being done and approach it from a human-centered focus, right? That's another person you're talking to. And so the ability to have soft skills that you bring to a team, I think, is the most crucial component of transferable skill in any part of facilitating if you're running a meeting. You're facilitating if you're in front of a people presenting a topic. You're facilitating and moving people through a space towards another avenue in which you're like, this is the project I'm working on. This is the end outcome, right? If you're, if you're navigating from point A to point B, there's some form of facilitation because you're working with other people. Anytime that there's a... a a variable of one individual and a variable of another individual, there's some form of facilitation happening. And so if you could consider that and learn that you could adapt based on what's happening in the here and now, that you could be flexible in what you wanted based on what is going to be the outcome, and then learn how to criticize it with a critical lens and a way to learn best, I think are all very crucial transferable skills that are helpful in literally any environment. How do we, other than me just taking that soundbite and then just (laughs) throwing it on speakers, what does the industry need to do? Because I've brought this up to other people. I know that we've had discussions about this, but we both have experience working a volunteer for uh, the Association for Experiential Ed. Mm -hmm. We know its strengths, but we also know some of its pitfalls, right? Like, so what, what, from your perspective, does experiential ed need to do more? Do you find that people who are students who are coming into your program, do do they have perceptions already coming in that you have to immediately get rid of? How do we squash the general perceptions of what experiential ed is so that yeah. people could actually understand so that, the reality of what we do yeah. is worthwhile? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a big topic. Solve these yeah. problems, you know, and then we'll tackle yeah. some bigger ones, you know? <laughs> Simple. Uh, so this is funny because it makes me think of all the conversations I ever have with family. My family on a regular basis over holidays uh, or, or like if I'm playing a game and they're like, so tell me about your job. What are you doing? And they're always like, so you're still a teacher, right? Or you're still a professor or you're still, uh, you know, like in front of a classroom. Like, it's like my classroom is not what you think it is. And so I constantly have to talk about or clarify what, what I do. Mm-hmm. And I think that in itself is, can we create a language that's a little bit more accessible to those who don't do what we do? Mm-hmm. And when we say experiential ed, you know what I mean to times people have asked you do experimental ed right I'm like i literally wrote it out like it's on a profile or on a website yeah. it doesn't read experimental but that's still a question i might get mm-hmm. and so are we using terms that don't match to what, what we do and maybe there are places that we could look that do it better right i know that you and i prior to this recording we're talking about the, the corporate world and, and how i think some of the people who are facilitating in the corporate world know how to cater their language for those who don't do this work and why it matters, right? If you could put together a whole entire business portfolio of the type of facilitations you could do for a a business and they'll pay you a hundred grand to go do it for them for the year, that tells me that they have bridged some type of gap that we're not doing generally as an industry in the, in the realm of just education. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we need to, to look at what others are doing well and maybe ask them, can we, can we adapt a bit to what you're doing so those who we need to serve could understand how we do it? Yeah. 
right? The, the fact that on my webpage, I have to create a, a list of words that need to be defined. So you know that if you're requesting this, this is the things we'll be doing uh, is already a barrier for people to access. And, and that's not even talking about those who don't have access financially or those who don't have access to enter this, this field because they can't put the time towards it because there's no real upward trajectory that they could find, right? I'm in a position where I think I've become lucky. I, I work at a university that has uh, many resources that allows me to have professional development. I am very, very happy uh, with that opportunity. But it doesn't mean that I'm at the upward trajectory of being paid as much as I think I would want to be paid for what I do. And I can only imagine those who are trying to enter this field, seeing those dollar signs and trying to equate that to the worth of doing this as a career. And that dollar sign is a problem, not just in this industry, but education as a whole. You have people who are doing administrative work who are getting paid upper echelons of money. And then it's hard to compare when you're the person in front of a bunch of thousands of people possibly a year trying to say, this is what we do, but I'm getting paid pennies on the dollar compared to somebody who is, who is managing paperwork or processes that we don't maybe don't fully understand. And so I think it's a very hard thing to navigate the, the mm-hmm. political uh, money version, but also the language use. And I don't have a, an ideal solution, but I think we could reach out to our corporate folks who, who might have better answers. Mm-hmm. We could have a critical lens on what are the barriers that we have to our programs right now to people who don't have access to it. Because I know a lot of people, a lot of our colleagues entered through camp life, entered through, oh, I've, I've helped run facilitate, like facilitated ropes courses when I was young, or I you know, went boating or rock climbing, right? I did not experience any of that in the same way. And so I think I, like I said, I got lucky. But I can imagine those who are urban environments, those who uh, don't have a mentor or the financial capacity to get out or do something are even more limited to know what this field even is. And we're young, right? If you're like, like don't get me wrong, <laughs> Not experimental ed, but experiential ed has been around forever. It's just not been titled that way, has not been researched that way. And it's really hard to provide evidence to those who need some type of statistic that says this is what's worthy. Yeah. It also makes me think about uh, the industry of art, right? The, the initial realm in which I was trying to enter when I was going through my undergrad experience is then how do you value a piece of art, right? Like mm-hmm. what makes something multi-million dollars to purchase this painting versus this that looks almost similar being just $10 at the, the store, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do you then value time and energy people do for graphic design? The amount of posts I have from friends who do their own graphic design for customized work and they have to promote like, I can't do this unpaid. Like this is a paid gig. This is my, my portfolio. Right. Mm -hmm. And so almost like, how do you value the time investment for creative purposes? Right. And I think our field, there's a lot of creativity that is required for us to be successful. And that is immeasurable. Right. If you even think back on, I don't know and if you talked about Immanuel Kant in your philosophy class, uh, but one of the things he says about geniuses is that geniuses could only be someone who creates something from nothing. And, and imagine how many times do we have to just create something from thin air mm-hmm. because that's what's happening. And that takes a lot of energy and effort and that's not measurable. I was on a, another podcast, Camp Minder. I've kind of worried I was going to get in some hot water with the people, the directors high five, because I essentially went on that podcast and said, if they asked, the question got asked, if you had $100,000, like Phil, if I had $100,000, what would you recommend? And I said, not a challenge course. And I'm a, I work for an industry that builds them, right? So 
and the reason I said that is because I, I think there's, there's much more focus needs to be on staff training. There needs to be an adventure program that you build. It can, yeah. You can build that without anything. You don't need any props. If you really wanted one, grab an Ubuntu deck. That would be me selling something from Pi 5, right? But there doesn't the need to have this big ticket item. But I think the problem with those ticket items and then also think of props like rubber chickens and hula hoops and stuff, that, that's the visual. So, But the, the problem with the visual is that is what is the late, how you're going to get labeled is that first impression yeah. visual. Ugh. And so I, I can say as a facilitator who's been doing this a while, I don't carry, I know new facilitators in outdoor ed sites because they carry hula hoops on their shoulders. They have <laughs> noodles sticking out of their bags. <laughs> People will listen to this, and I, I'm sorry if this is you. I'm <laughs> describing you, but I understand that you might be new, and that's that's how I was. I Every single program, I would walk out when the bus arrived with a hula hoop over my shoulder and a noodle stuck in my bag, and I'd have things stuffed in, like so many props. And I don't carry them as much out with a, me in the program anymore because I don't want that to be the thing. I remember having kids and adults like, what are we, when are we going to do the noodle thing? When are we going to do the thing with the hula hoop? You sort of set yourself up as this is – you have to fight really hard to break down that initial thing. I just wonder about, is there that kind of mindset with the industry too? We need to figure out what our image ultimately looks like. How do we value the stuff that we do? Do you get often asked to run games for different departments because you're the games guy? I know I do. I know that I'm when I go for family events, I'm the guy that sits at the kids' table. I know that I have done team development stuff at family weddings, mine included, because I got asked to do this, because I'm the games guy. Yeah, yeah. We need to be better at being able to maybe say no to some of those stuff and say, well, no, it's not really a, a game. It's a valuable thing. In the same way that maybe uh, people who collect action figures will argue that they shouldn't take them out of the box. Like, they've got a reason. Like, and they've got all of the rationale and you'd be like, oh, you collect toys and you're like, no. And then you explain, I collect comic books. So I have some understanding of that. Like I have some books in plastic. Why don't you read them? Why don't you read them? Cause I don't want my sticky hands on them. Like, I wonder if we have to try to figure out a way to be more le- legitimate. I don't know. I, I'm sport of spitball and ideas. That I'm going to get some backlash from, but I just say, I just wonder if there's something to that, the way that we portray ourselves and the, and the tools that we use. If we're throwing around rubber chickens all the time, is it a surprise that we, we get labeled as the game guys? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I think a lot of times that we, we don't interpret the things we're using as a way or describe them that they're effective tools. Right. <clears throat> a lot of times people, we describe them as props right? And what is a prop? How many times have you heard the word prop in theater and comedy, <laughs> right? And so how often are we then talking about the different things we're doing are props, we're using props. And then, and then for me, uh, the word prop means almost like to prop something up or a, a crutch. Mm. And th- I have a conversation on a regular basis with my staff about what are your facilitation crutches? And a lot of times it's using props. And so why don't we call them tools? Why don't we call them some other type of thing that showcases that they're something to use? Like a, a screwdriver is a tool for somebody who is building something, mm-hmm. right? We're using a rubber chicken as a tool, as a mechanism of learning, not as a prop. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times it's, it's how we describe it to others. And I think uh, we have, I have a lot of conversations with my student staff about how, what do you call this? What do you say this? What, are, what is our program? Like, what are people saying what we do? And so I will say that I, we've crucially shifted, at least in my area, about how people talk about us not just doing games, right? Leadership has been a big piece of the, how it's described. And I think that took a long time for that culture shift to say that we don't do just games. 
But I will say that I'm still the riddle person at any major social gathering and or family gathering. Uh, the amount of times like, you got a riddle for us? You got a new riddle for us? Oh, so, yeah. And it's, <laughs> there are so many benefits to the stuff we have. I, like, I have a Lycra tube that my daughter loves. I think that this is an interesting thing for newer facilitators. Is I, would, I would try to squeeze in as many activities as I could, right? And now... I will, I'll have a day programming and I'll have a list of 10 activities and I'll do five of them in a day. You know, if I'm having asked now to fill an hour, it's like, all right, well, one thing, I'm doing one thing for an hour. Maybe two. <laughs> I know. And I think that that is a, there's, there's experience that comes with being much more comfortable in your pacing. Yeah. And, but there's also the comfortability with, especially if it's a paid client coming in that you have more confidence in being able to say, if you only gave them one thing that that is still their money worth. Because I think that there's this pressure that when clients are paying for something that you as a facilitator feel that you're pressured to do fill every second, because that's the way that they get their money's worth and their money's worth might be from you saying not a thing for the last 20 minutes and them talking on their own. And then you not even doing a report out, thing at the end you're just saying whatever you're left with that's what you're left with and then you being comfortable that you did a, still did a good job right that, it, that's a hard conversation the value added right the, i think that's a regular thing that happens is like what value are you adding as the person who is guiding the learning mm-hmm. and then are you okay with where it went or where it didn't go i think a lot of the times the initial that secondary question where it didn't go is a hang up for a lot of new facilitators is that I wanted this to happen and it didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that want doesn't shift the impact, right? It could very much been a great experience for them. And sometimes that's not recognized because you're stuck in your head or a new person is stuck in their head about what they couldn't finish, what they didn't get to. My plan wasn't finished. Right. Uh, and so I purposely share, like if, if a group asks, I will share my game plan with them and then I will show them or the group leader, at least this is what we didn't do. Mm-hmm. Right. I planned extra just in case. And I do what the, what the group needs and, and we can't make that judgment call until you're here. Because what you tell me as one person of a group of 50 is only your perspective of that group of 50. When those other 49 people come in, they might be coming in differently than you anticipated. And so we have to make that game call right then and there about what we can accomplish and cannot accomplish. And so we plan for the avenues in which we could go. And so I think the struggle, though, is for those who really want to get their plan fully done, right? You, like you said, they want they have this list. They want to get through their list, right? The task-oriented facilitator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to check this off, check this off, check this off. And uh, I think one really good thing for new facilitators to think about is what are you okay with not checking off? And, and, and make those your backups, make those your, your adaptations and, and always think about what does the group actually need and what are they leaving with. One question I had was, and we, we've, we're on this path anyway, and you've already given some, some advice. What advice would you give to someone who wants to work in this industry? I think there's a um, time that needs to be spent to carefully reflect on what matters to you as a person. Is there alignment in the field and opportunities that match your needs? I think it's all too often that we're okay with letting go with what our needs are so that we could like the people pleaser crowd uh, me being one of them. And I have to fight that on a regular basis is you need to think about you be selfish. 
think a lot of times we're not selfish enough. And I think selfish is, is a horrible word, right? It sounds so negative, <laughs> but I think that we need to focus on ourselves, right? Oh, like there's always a piece of us. We're the main component, the main resource as a person to be able to do this job well. And so if we can't spend the time and energy to know what our needs are to be successful as people, then how do we put ourselves in a world where we're going to help guide others? And so I think one of the big elements for, for those who are looking to enter the field is to think about what are your needs as a person and is the field going to match them? And, and, and so that's like the first big reflection piece that you need to critically think about. Uh, but then also, are there places, like, are you willing to compromise, right? And that's any job, right? It's not, it's not just this industry, but is there a period of compromise? Will you be willing to move somewhere? Will you be able to live in a place that you didn't think you'd end up living? Are you willing to spend another year uh, as a co-facilitator following somebody else and learning from their process, right? And I think there is no, this industry is very unique in its way of where you get somewhere, and, and there's not a, this is the one way that everybody enters. And this is the one way everybody exits. It is, there's no one way that everybody enters. And so you need to somehow find your own path. And that's, you have to do that. It's not something that someone's going to hand you on a platter. And yes, we talked about a little bit of luck, but I still had to say yes. And I still had to put in energy and time to learn. Still had to create some focus of where I wanted to go. I had a five-year plan when I interviewed. I had a 10-year plan when I interviewed. And I was able to share that concretely about what I want from the program I'm going to take over. We we got, it took seven years to get to my five-year plan, but, you know, adapting is, <laughs> is a key of this industry. But also be okay with when you compromise, what are the core values that you get to keep no matter what? If at any juncture you find that your core values are being challenged for what you want to do as you as a person, that's not the place for you. Maybe it's not the industry. Maybe it's not the specific job. Maybe it's not the location. Maybe it's not the responsibilities you're asked to do. And so you need to advocate for you, right? That selfishness that I mentioned earlier is a core piece of success. You're, you're going to be your best advocate, probably also your biggest challenge, but, but you need to be able to advocate for yourself. And that's really hard as a young professional to do. And so this is me inviting you to challenge those who are above you, challenge the process and, and, and know where your values are. And that might take some time and energy to, to invest in, in your values and then truly understand them and know if it aligns. You have to marry your values with where you're going. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Phil. So there you have it. A wonderful episode with Mark. I certainly enjoy talking to Mark Flynn and hopefully you enjoyed me enjoying talking to Mark Flynn. It's uh, so much information that he was sharing, so many good points made about really focusing on yourself as an educator, as a practitioner in this industry, realizing where your values are, and also talking about what our industry needs to do to propel ourselves forward into the future. All of those things I agree with, and if you listen to a previous episode, I think it was one of the listener questions episodes, I went on a similar conversation, a similar trend when it came to the financial component of us working in this industry, and I know that me and Mark are very much aligned and we've had conversations outside of this recording about that, su that subject, so I thank him for bringing his perspective into this conversation. If you want to reach out to Mark, 
His email is in the description of this podcast, and I know that he is always gracious and freely gives his time and experience to anyone who wants to learn more about this industry. He is a wealth of knowledge, and he's very, very organized in his mindset, so really helpful uh, resource to you if you are new into this industry. So stay safe, stay connected, reach out on Instagram. Thanks so much and see you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playpen. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>